Welcome back to Night School, episode 13, Song of Myself, 1892 version, part 11. And back with me, my esteemed colleague, uh, seemingly every night colleague right now, uh, Mr. Wesley Shantz. I know. This is kind of what we have been doing for, well, I don't know, about a month now, right? Working on this one, because we started with The Raven back in early fall, it, it felt like, and now middle of our uh, autumn's way we're about halfway through old whitman yeah i wonder who you want to do next uh if you have any ideas on that because it's it's starting to get to around that time where that might matter gosh so many ideas i i would say we should do dickinson poems something shorter and something you know different but from a similar time frame as these other two uh, I think that would be a cool, cool person to read. Sometimes. I think that's excellent. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Let's do Dickinson next. That'd be great. Um, I think she, or at least in one of my esteemed, my other esteemed colleagues' uh, uh, opinion, who is the American literature teacher at the school I teach at, is that Whitman and Dickinson are essentially, and he threw in some crude adjectives, that, uh, I, you know, I'm sure you could look up a, a few facts about both of them, and then you could make up your own mind about the jokes you could develop. <laughs> but um, he said that Dickinson and Whitman are essentially the father and mother of American poetry. And so that would make sense, especially given the mother imagery we considered last time, uh, to move into that domain next time, into Dickinson. I think that's wonderful. Well, yeah, that's what they say, right? Honor your father and mother. So that's what we're aiming to do here. Well, all right. So 31. Yes. 31. I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. And the pismere is equally perfect. And a grain of sand and the egg of the wren. And the tree toad is a chef d'oeuvre for the highest. And the running blackberry would adorn the parlors of heaven. And the narrowest hinge in my hand puts to scorn all machinery. And the cow crunching with depressed head surpasses any statue. And a mouse is miracle enough to stagger sextillions of infidels. I find I incorporate meese, coal, long-threaded moss, fruits, grains, esculent roots. And am stuccoed with quadrupeds and birds all over and have distanced what is behind me for good reasons, but call anything back again when I desire it. In vain the speeding or shyness, in vain the plutonic rocks send their old heat against my approach, in vain the mastodon retreats beneath its own powdered bones, in vain objects stand leagues off and assume manifold shapes, in vain the ocean settling in hollows and the great monsters lying low. In vain the buzzard houses herself with the sky. In vain the snake slides through the creepers and logs. In vain the elk takes to the inner passes of the woods. In vain the razor-billed auk sails far north to Labrador. I follow quickly. I ascend to the nest in the fissure of the cliff. Well, this is one heck of a part, though I would say that the focal point for me 
remains the first line. I just, I'm awestruck by how beautiful it is. I believe a statement of faith, a leaf of grass, with, uh, that, with that which gives the title to the entire work. And so Whitman too recognizes the power of this line is no less than the journey work of the stars. What does that mean? I, I know it's beautiful, but that it seems to be a return to his universalism, that that which is the grass is just as awe-inspiring as that which is the stars, and there's actually a causal relationship between them. It's sort of an Aristotelian point in that respect, in that we as finite beings on Earth are sort of like embodied copies of the celestial perfect bodies in heaven. Um, and then he returns to his uh, sort of universalism that he's been doing, right? The, the tree toad, the sort of Socratic using of uh, regular everyday things to illustrate uh, great points. It's sort of a Buddhist practice too. What is it that Alan Watts says about the Buddhist master that he makes of the material metaphysical and of the metaphysical material. So he's a master of making relationships between universals and particular manifestations of them in reality. Um, and so we're getting that here from Whitman, the narrowest hinge in my hand was to scorn all machinery. He's talking about the power of life so often here, running Blackberry, um, the mouse rather, or, and all of this as a post, uh, there's a statue at some point that he talks about. Um, that anything that has been made that is not living is nowhere near as interesting as that which is living. And the most interesting living thing is the thing that is narrating all these experiences, articulating, connecting, joining them together by art. And, 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 and he throws it in your face in vain, in vain, in vain. That shows, uh, I mean, that, that bit of anaphora shows conscious repetition and uh, recalls to me, say, Ecclesiastes, which, you know, all, all that which is beneath the sun is vanity, right? Um, in vain, in vain. Um, well, actually, I'd like to ask you a question. Uh, what, do you, what do you make of that in vain, that conscious repetition, uh, sort of biblical? Or, yeah, go on. No, yeah, I, I think that as he began with his I believe, this whole thing is a is is more of an affirmation, and so what's in vain seems to be the the way that these things would perhaps escape because it seems like the the upshot is that last line: "I follow quickly, I ascend to the nest in the fissure of the cliffs." So he, the poet, the poetic narrator here, can go wherever these things go; they 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 cannot escape him. That's what I take that last stanza to be saying. Um, the the opening of it, the the uh, first line in thirty one, um, the journey work seems to be juxtaposed by the the chef d'oeuvre, right? The master work. So it's like the journeyman, the apprentice work of the stars, and the masterpiece for the highest, right? Like again, there's this like tension between what is um, incomplete or imperfect and what is totally finished and, and can't be improved upon. And he seems to be, I, I agree, he seems to be mixing those things again, right? Um, the pismire, that's, a, that's an old word for an ant. I looked it up. Hmm. Uh, and so the ant 
the grain of sand, the egg of the wren, the tree toad, the blackberry, right? All these common things. Um, the simplest, the, the smallest is equally perfect to the most complex, right? It goes down to uh, minerals, uh, vegetables, <laughs> um, and these are, you know, like he says, they're, they're sort of incorporated with him. They're, um, he's a kind of mosaic, he's a stucco, right, of all of these things that in that sense, I suppose he, they, um, they can never elude him because they're already a part of him, right? And it's a matter, as he puts it, of his desiring. And so it seems like he's kind of got that, that lustful desire that he was wrestling with. He seems to have gotten it back under control, back in hand here. And he is uh, very much back in his, um, his uh, mighty, you know, poet mode uh, in 31 here. It is a, a very lovely little section of the poem. Yeah. And I think the last line is beautiful too. If it, and not only for its sense of motion forward, um, but just the imagery of the nest in the fissure of the cliff. It's like a, a purely feminine image, right? Not only is the sort of fissure of the cliff sort of um, the opposite of phallic imagery, sort of vaginal imagery there, um, with a nest inside of it, also a maternal sort of image, a return back to his idea of the mother and the great mothers that he had figured and it, it's interesting that how that is juxtaposed with the imagery of the stars, or like the idea of the heavens in the first, uh, uh, in the first line. And the, I believe it's as if the masculine and the feminine are juxtaposed at the ends of these, and, um, it, which makes the word in vain all, all the more interesting for his potential opinion of uh, the feminine characteristic of, say, adornment or something like that. I, I'm not sure exactly whether he was intending that or not. But I do see that connection between the final line and the first line. What do you make of that? Oh, yeah. I, I do like the idea that believing and following as those two key verbs, um, you know, the stars and ascending, uh, and the idea that the nest is a kind of, it's a kind of, borderline between a created object and a natural object, right? Um, the ant kind of does that too, because the ant builds his, uh, builds its um, uh, farm, you know, its little, its little nests and anthills, that's the word I'm looking for. Yeah, so there's something going on here uh, that seems to be, yeah, blending a little bit of the, the high and the low, but in a, in a more uh, I don't know, more intentional may not be the right word, but a more balanced fashion, certainly. Um, he does but, seem to be pulling out some more advanced poetic tricks. Yeah. Like, like, I do agree that when you say he, he seems to be returning to his own master, his own chef d'oeuvre. Uh, and, you know, for those of you who don't like that French word, it if you just put the word... H-O-R-S in front of that, that's order. Mm -hmm. You know, that's a helpful word to know because it's just very difficult when you come upon it if you don't know how to say it. And uh, It's got too many letters. A <laughs> lot of letters. Yeah, the French, you know. 
But uh, it does seem as if Whitman is less questioning himself and more manifesting his ability as a poet here, yeah. while also making explicit in a poetic fashion, but a, a clear poetic fashion, his, again, universalist principles that like all that runs through life is worthy of notice and is thus of interest and worthy of articulation by me. Yeah. Um, and you yeah. think you pointed out last time about this, but the, the very first image there, the leaf of grass, that is the one he plays on with the idea of the leaves in a book, right? That, that's sort of the, that seems to be another one of these, these points at which he interpenetrates with his subject matter, right? The leaves of grass are turned into the pages of the book. Yeah. The title for the work. So I want to ask you about that. Why a leaf of grass rather than a blade of grass? Is, is it to make that metaphor explicit or, or is that sort of a, uh, an expression that's fallen away uh, over time? I don't know how, I don't know how to distinguish the two. It's, it certainly doesn't sound as, as normal an expression to our ears. I don't know whether it was at the time or not, but, um, but it's certainly has a, a less um, warlike sound to it, doesn't it? A leaf versus a blade. Right. Right. Yeah, no, I'm, I, I'm interested in why it was a leaf of grass because I mean, just the leaf of grass, like a leaf, you know, in a pamphlet or, uh, you know, leaf imagery is very close to book imagery. It's pages made of, you know, paper, which are also a part of a tree um, or from a part of a tree. And the idea, like we've been saying with this 52 part, sort of 52 weeks out of the year, sort of pastiche of a life thrown together um, with this sort of existential focus on the subject and its ability to experience all that is, while still trying to recognize that there's more than what it has seen. That's something maybe I'm waiting for a little more in Whitman a curiosity for that which he does not know. Because I think we've been getting a lot of what he does know, and what he does believe, and what he can do. But I'm a little more, and maybe I just haven't noticed it, but I, I am interested to see what he thinks is beyond his boundaries, and if he can right. confront that. Yeah, well, it's hard to tell sometimes when his questions are rhetorical and when they are, you know, really wondering. And, and they, they appear now and then, so it would be an interesting thread to kind of watch for. Yeah, well, shall we to 32? Sure. I think I could turn and live with animals. They're so placid and self-contained. I stand and look at them long and long. They do not sweat and whine about their condition. They do not lie awake in the dark and weep for their sins. They do not make me sick discussing their duty to God. Not one is dissatisfied. Not one is demented with the mania of owning things. Not one kneels to another, nor to his kind that lived thousands of years ago. Not one is respectable or unhappy over the whole earth. So they show their relations to me, and I accept them. They bring me tokens of myself. They evince them plainly in their possession. I wonder where they get those tokens. Did I pass that way huge times ago and negligently drop them? 
myself moving forward, then and now and forever, gathering and showing more, always and with velocity, in the infinite and omnigenous, and the like of these among them, not too exclusive toward the reachers of my remembrancers, picking out here one that I love, and now go with him on brotherly terms. A gigantic beauty of a stallion, fresh and responsive to my caresses, head high and the forehead wide between the ears, limbs glossy and supple, tail dusting the ground, eyes full of sparkling wickedness, ears finely cut, flexibly moving, his nostrils dilate as my heels embrace him, his well-built limbs tremble with pleasure as we race around and return. I but use you a minute, then I resign you, stallion. Why do I need your paces when I myself outgallop them, even as I stand or sit, passing faster than you? Wonderful. This is a I think this is an example of that that point we were just talking about with um, this question that appears kind of at the turning point of this section 32 here, um, where he switches over from talking about animals in general, and then he sort of switches to talk to this um, specific example being the, the stallion. Um, he takes it for a quick, quick ride around the track. Uh, and in that question that he asks, where did they get these tokens? I wonder, did I pass that way huge times ago and negligently drop them? Like, in some sense, he himself is responsible for these um, reflections that he sees when he looks at them long and long, right? He He's devoted this time, this attention to them, and Part of it is because they're so different from people, right? There's, there's all these contrasts that he goes into in the second stanza, all the things that they do differently than humans, and they stand in stark contrast in all these sort of satirical ways to the, um, the moaning and groaning and um, sort of, I guess, dogmatic religious religiosity, I guess, something like that of, of his fellow men. But then he sees in them something of himself, right? And he, he wonders where they got it, right? Of course, in some sense, he must be responsible. His, um, his passage then kind of becomes this new motif, right? This velocity, and he can't account for it, but he can sort of sense that he's always been in process, like always moving through time. Um, I take that to be like the development of consciousness, of this, this passion, this desire that he's kind of fixed upon in the last few um, parts that we've been reading, kind of wrestled with, and now he's kind of got under control, much like the, the stallion, right? That he he brings to uh, to use and then to let go, because after all, right? Here's definitely a rhetorical question. Why do I need your paces when I myself out gallop them, right? So it's not for the stallion's speed, but it's for this kind of kinship between them that he seems to most admire. And I love that line, eyes full of sparkling wickedness. I think he can definitely feel a kindred uh, spirit in the stallion there. I, I really like that. Yeah, and there seems to be sort of a nested Phaedrus imagery in there with the platonic idea of the tripartite soul being a charioteer 
for the rational intellect and a noble stallion, uh, uh, white and beautiful, uh, which is the will or the spirit, the thumos, as opposed to the noose. Um, and um, then there's, of course, the ignoble, poorly behaved Evan stallion that you have to pull the bit on so hard that its gums bleed in order to rein it in to make it work with the spirit. And it, this seems to be sort of that notion that he's bringing himself under control. And this is the imagery he chooses to to suggest that his period of apprenticeship is over and he is now master and that he has mastered himself or the beast within. He has subjected himself as a human animal to the initiation process of becoming poet. And that this is the expression of his, his uh, mastery of himself in this domain. Um, and I really like that idea because I'm teaching the Purgatorio right now. And the idea that one subjects oneself to sort of the difficulty of suffering through the days in some, uh, you know, endeavor in order to become something new, like a lawyer or a doctor or, you know, a great scholar who spends one's day learning or, and learning how to do new things. Um, but that um, at, at some point, one has to, uh, one has to produce a work that shows one's uh, what one has learned. And uh, this seems to be him saying that what, what he has learned from his education is, well, he has learned the self-mastery that is represented by uh, bringing one's passions under self-control and moving all in one direction in a uni as a unified whole in order to have a very specific effect in the world. And he seems to be wanting to be American epic poet who presents universal naturalist and deistic themes and you know, shows the way forward for the next people or what they should love in the world and in America and yeah. how they could express themselves. Yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I see that he's, um, I, I like the, the idea of the Phaedrus uh, being brought in with the, the horse image there. I, uh, I also think that there's a certain amount of um, gadfly that he's doing uh, mm -hmm. in that in that satirical second, um, right? The, because the horse is also the <laughs> the city state of Athens, right? That that sort of is uh, off to and doing up to no good and needs to be kind of stung into uh, into action. It's, it's a little it's a little lethargic, right? And that's um, that's sort of Socrates' image of himself as the stinger. The gadfly, and that's uh, I think what he's doing a little bit there, um, in his own laconic way, uh, in the in the second stanza, which, um, yeah, again, just uh, <laughs> they make him sick. You know, that's some of the strongest <laughs> negative imagery that that we've gotten so far. That, um, and it's in it's couched in a negative phrase as well. It's what they don't do. But by implication, that's what his fellow men do uh, once when he looks at them sometimes. If, uh, yeah, and so if, if there is something that he wonders at, remember a while ago now, it was, it was how there could be anyone so mean, right? Or, or un, um, unbelieving or something like that. I forget now the phrase that he used. 
but that was one of the things he wondered at. And, uh, and here, you know, the higher he sort of ascends in his poetic mastery and in his own personal evolution, the further, in some ways, it seems like he is from understanding uh, how some of his countrymen have managed to, uh, to get themselves in such a state. Um, and, you know, there's, well, there's a, there's a, a certain amount of arrogance to that I guess you know but uh after all he did work on this poem for like 50 years so I guess he figured out the way he wanted to say it so well it's it's just so interesting because it's uh for all the beauty he sees in nature in things like ants he fails to see the beauty in his fellow man in this respect and it seems to be because he's sort of upset at perhaps what man can be if man takes a more liberal approach to life and, you know, is less bound by morality and is more open to new experience, which seems to be sort of at the root of Whitman's um, morality, which I think is what makes it difficult for him to come down on one side of a position. Um, but also he, he just seems totally uh, dismiss and find past judgment negatively about people who seem to have a doctrinaire belief in a religion, sort of a just simply behavioral and basic articulation level uh, sort of relationship to religion. And that, I mean, even a human that is not particularly impressive to other humans by human standards is still pretty much the most impressive thing ever to have existed <laughs> anywhere. Um, especially compared to things like a leaf or an ant um, or anything else in the world, right? Like uh, even a disinteresting human is fantastically interesting as a, you know, like a living conscious phenomenon. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think he's, again, I think he's being a little tongue-in-cheek yeah. here and just sort of like it's it's one of those things where it's like, oh, you know, compared to how great you could be you know, wink, nudge, like me, the poet, uh, you know, like compared to the promise and the potential of, of people, um, it just, that, that's got to be part of what makes him so uh, discouraged when he sees them not living up to it, right? So on the other hand, right, the animals, they don't have that pesky self-awareness and um, they're in that respect, you know, so much more immediately uh, appealing to him to kind of behold and, and wonder at. So, yeah, it's an interesting uh, little little turn that it takes there. Yeah, they seem to live out their stories without mistake, sort of being in the Tao. So, shall we finish with 33? I'm just sort of scaling over it right now, and I don't know, Wes, we might need to just, wow. No, I think that's going to have to wait for next time. Yeah, <laughs> oh my gosh. This might be two or three. I'm just still going. Sure. Did I miss I'm something? <laughs> I was laughing about this like several seconds ago. We and might need to break this one. My yeah. God. Wow. Yeah. 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 All right. So for and next it makes time. Sense that the word Texas would be in the very next line after that. <laughs> 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 yeah.
Awesome. Uh, well, um, you know, we read, you know, a couple, a couple sections here tonight and I guess we'll probably read part of one section next time. <laughs> so we are doing fine. Uh, yeah. It's always, always fun though. Um, yeah. I always have a good time doing it. I think it's a helpful, good work. And, um, you know, we're going to keep doing it until we get through it. And this is what we like to do. So keep tuning in people. That's right. It's our journey work. It's our journey work. Right. We're hoping to, to spin out a chef d'oeuvre at some point, but you know, you got to put in the time. So that's what we're doing. All right. Thanks again. Thank you.